Very good morning, and uh, thank you very much for uh, coming to the Cato Institute uh, for our uh, policy forum on uh, South Africa and the uh, upcoming elections. My name is uh, Marian Tupi. I'm a policy analyst uh, with the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and um, uh, I am delighted to see you all here. Uh, on the 22nd of April, South Africa will um, undergo its fourth democratic election uh, since uh, multiracial, multi-party democracy was introduced to the country in uh, 1994 at the end of uh, apartheid. Um, since 1994, as I'm sure you all know, uh, the ANC uh, was uh, re-elected and continued to be re-elected with an increasing majority. Um, and um, no doubt the last uh, 15 years have uh, uh, brought about many changes. Uh, much has been accomplished and much still remains to be accomplished. South Africa uh, faces challenges both internally uh, but also inter externally as the global economy um, slows down. I assume that its impacts on uh, many African countries uh, will be quite severe. How is South Africa going to be um, coping with uh, these challenges uh, remains, to be, remains to be open. Uh, it is precisely at this time that uh, we also have a, uh, a changing political situation in the country. For the first time, South African, uh, the, the African National Congress is going to be facing a, um, a challenge from uh, a a group that split away from from the ANC, the uh, the Congress of the People, um, and uh, this is um, uh, assumed to be a, uh, a, qu a quite a challenge from uh, from a historically uh, black uh, political group with its roots in the liberation movement. Uh, does Cope have much of an electoral potential or not? What? Um, uh, are the expectations for the outcome of the elections, and how will the new government cope uh, with uh, some of the problems um, that I've described? Uh, we have, first of all, uh, the ambassador of South Africa, Ambassador Willy Wele and Lapo. Ambassador Lapo uh, joined the Department of Foreign Affairs in 1994 and was part of the South African uh, government's delegation to the United Nations General Assembly when South Africa was readmitted to the UN. In 1995, he was appointed South Africa's ambassador to Ethiopia and uh, permanent representative to the Organization of African Unity and the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa. In 1997, he became special envoy to Burundi. He also served as non-resident ambassador to Djibouti, Eritrea, and Sudan. In 1998, uh, he became the Deputy Director General for Africa in the Department of Foreign Affairs, where he participated in South Africa's conflict resolution efforts in Lesotho, the DRC, Comoros, Zimbabwe, and the Great Lakes region. He was sub subsequently appointed South Africa's Special Envoy to Burundi, where he spearheaded negotiations aimed at finding a solution to the conflict of Burundi. He was later appointed Deputy Head of Mission for Political Affairs at the African Union admission to Burundi, um, and um, later served as the director of the Department of Political Affairs at the United Nations headquarters in New York. 
he assumed his uh, post as South Africa's ambassador to the United to the United States of America on uh, 14th of August 2007. Uh, please help me welcome uh, South African Ambassador Valen Lapo. Thank you very much for uh, the introduction and thanks for giving us this opportunity to speak at this critical moment in the history of our country about the developments uh, in South Africa. Indeed, as you have indicated, uh, on the 22nd of uh, April, that is next week, we are having our ordinary election, regular election as per our constitution and also in, in line with our electoral law. I, I'm saying this because many people are, are, are saying this is an extraordinary uh, election. Um, there might be extraordinary circumstances, but it is just an ordinary election, uh, regular, as I indicated. The circumstances might be what uh, creates a lot of uh, interest and therefore ending up in the characterizations of these elections as one of the most difficult and one of the most testing Part, part of what uh, we are dealing with here is a number of situations that uh, are not only peculiar to South Africa. One is the uh, current uh, global economic situation, which in itself uh, might render this election extraordinary in the sense that uh, whatever uh, is being said and promised uh, might not be realized because the circumstances might not allow for the fulfillment of those promises. And therefore, the expectations that are being raised in the election might be tested. Uh, I think that's one uh, set of conditions that one must take into consideration. The other one, uh, as indicated, is... The fact that uh, you, you have the, the ANC, which has had uh, <clears throat> some internal uh, dynamics in it, resulting in some of its uh, leaders leaving the party and forming their own uh, Congress of the People, uh, who some people have seen as a, a positive sign because uh, they believe that uh, the only strong opposition that can emerge in South Africa will be from within the ANC itself. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, the people who, who, who have been given this responsibility by analysts and observers uh, would today uh, be comfortable with that 
position that is being accorded to them at this historical moment because circumstances are beginning to prove uh, different. I'll come to that later. But I think the other thing that is different from uh, the others uh, in the past is that it is the end of a two-term of a presidency as determined by our constitution. And therefore, we were bound to have a new president. And that in itself presents a challenge because it means that parties have would therefore have to, particularly the ANC, had to go through a process of determining what happens at the, term, at the end of the term of the president of the ANC who was also president of the country. And in the process of debating and trying to resolve that problem, uh, that opened a, a very serious leadership race which uh, ended up with the current president of the ANC winning uh, the ANC conference that uh, had to determine this thing. Uh, and of course, uh, having won and given certain circumstances and problems, uh, legal problems around him, that became something also that had to be taken into account as to what are the implications of this and what does it mean. Just something that has never happened before. That could be also described as extraordinary in the circumstances. But also what happened is that uh, uh, at a particular point, the president of the ANC, president of the country was no longer the president of the ANC was forced to resign uh, by the ANC uh, which paved the way for an interim president to come in uh, interim in the sense that the ANC had already taken a decision that its president shall be the president of the country, because that was part of the debate, whether the president of the ANC should necessarily be the president of the country. There is no constitutional prerogative for that. Our national constitution does not prescribe that, because we don't have a presidential system. So the parties will have to agree as to who they feel as their candidates after the election, after the MPs have been sworn in, and that new parliament then elects a president. You only have a candidate at that time. But of course, this time the ANC had to reaffirm his candidacy of his president because of the circumstances that I've described. So there is no presidential election. I think that's one of the things we must get clear. Because at times this causes confusion as to what exactly is this election all about? Those are some of the, what I can describe as the extraordinary circumstances that you might have to take note of. Now, having said that, let, let me start by saying that indeed we are 15 years into a, a democracy, a, a very young democracy for that matter. And given the circumstances of our past, 
I think we can be able to say without any fear of contradiction that we have done pretty quite well. But the, the challenges are still outstanding in many areas because of the damage that the apartheid system had done to our country. Fifteen years is not a long time. It's quite a short time. But I think for us, these 15 years has been quite a lot in terms of what we set for ourselves, in terms of defining our own freedom and what we've been able to achieve and the challenges that are still facing us. I, I would liken this 15 years of democracy to problems that we are confronted with and the turbulences that we might be facing to problems of adolescence. 15 year old, uh, many things happen at that age. So for us, we are not uh, very much worried. We've got this child that we have got to nurse, get back into where we want this child to go, this democracy of ours, correct all the mistakes, and make sure that we forge ahead and deliver of our prom on our promise to make our country what we want it to be. I think in these 15 years we have delivered on a number of very critical areas that have defined what apartheid meant to our people. The area of housing, which was a very critical and still a challenge even up to today, I think we have done quite well, uh, given the challenges uh, that we're faced with, in able to deliver housing to our people. But in the process of that, we discovered also certain challenges and problems associated with that. Uh, part of it had to do with uh, the structures of local governance and the tender processes. Uh, and in an attempt to promote those who have been previously disadvantaged, a lot of things went wrong in terms of the housing project. So we have not been able to do as much even if the resource were, resources were available uh, because of uh, a number of other problems that started creeping in at the local government level. Corruption being one of them in the manner in which tenders had been issued and therefore poor housing delivered to the people in certain instances. And in some instances, not adequate housing as could have been the case. Uh, that's part of the challenge and those are some of the things that we have to start looking at and see how we can be able to correct them and to make sure that uh, our local government structures can function very efficiently and that the whole tender system will have to be revised if some of the problems that we've picked up along the line can be resolved. At the education front, I think we tried to do a lot in a very short space of time, amalgamating 11 different education departments that existed under apartheid into one education department. 
Indeed, a number of things change in terms of access to education as guaranteed by the, by the Constitution, but the quality of the education still needs much uh, to be dealt with because it is quite clear with the progress that we're making in terms of housing and uh, with the growth of the, in the economy, we've come to realize that we've got a very low skills base and that what our education system is producing is not a human resource that we need for our growing, uh, growing uh, economy and the challenges that we're facing. So we've got to, again, sit back and look at our education system and see where we have gone wrong and what needs to be corrected. A part of the debate at this moment is, uh, is to perhaps uh, split the Department of Education into two, have a ministry for higher education and the tertiary education, and then the, another one for primary education so that the resources and attention can be devoted, but also to look at the curriculum development and to see whether the nature and the quality of the education is what we actually need. Otherwise, we are turning out uh, people who are not useful uh, in terms of our economic needs. Uh, so that's one of the challenges, and, uh, and I think if you look at the, all the manifestos of political parties, you'll find this as one of the key issues. I think the past 15 years, we've also faced <clears throat> a challenge of new forms of criminal activity, and I want to emphasize that, new forms of criminal activity. Because South Africa was an isolated country, before 1994, some forms of criminal activity, particularly of an international character, did not penetrate into our shores to the extent to which that happened when we achieved our democracy. So when it comes to some of the uh, international criminal uh, syndicates and their operations, and given the fragility of our, our institutions, uh, we became <clears throat> a target and a serious victim of uh, international criminal syndicates. Uh, and that's one area in which we're trying to cooperate with other countries uh, to try and deal with those issues uh, together, challenges which are not easy to deal with. Human trafficking uh, being just one example, or drug trafficking. Uh, those kinds of things. It's a mammoth challenge and something that you cannot do on your own. We have to find cooperation with other countries because uh, we all become either transit uh, points or destinations of either money laundering or drugs. But we also had uh, uh, certain forms of crimes that uh, would be South Africa specific uh, in terms of how they manifest themselves. Otherwise, it's crimes that you find everywhere else. But they will manifest themselves in a particular way because they emerge in a different set of conditions under apartheid. And therefore, with the weaknesses of our criminal justice system and other 
uh, issues related to it. And of course, the confidence that people, lack of confidence that people had in the police uh, became one of the issues that uh, made it very difficult to deal with the scourge of crime. Because criminals operate within communities, and communities criminals are known. They will never be reported. Uh, because people had no relationship with the police. Uh, the relationship that they had was one of being chased around, being arrested, and harassed, because that was the role of the police. So we have to build that confidence between the police and the communities. And where police community structures exist, the levels of crime have gone down. So it's something that has been proven that can work, uh, but it's still uh, exceptionally uh, too high. So it's one of the challenges that uh, we've tried to deal with and I think we'll continue to deal with. Uh, and some of the problems that, uh, as I indicated, affected our criminal justice system and the uh, police services. Uh, we inherited a, 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 an economy that was... Uh, seriously distorted. Uh, you have what one can describe uh, in South Africa as a very first-class infrastructure of a very high level, which normally is what at times uh, uh, mislead people uh, when they look into South Africa and not understand some of the challenges and problems that it is related to. Because side by side with this, it's abject poverty. Abject poverty. And therefore, to try and strike the balance and close the gap between the two has become quite a, a serious challenge. And some of the policies that were put in place to try and deal with this uh, discrepancy had led to a, a rise in the middle class, a black middle class, uh, which was a good thing. But that in itself has created its own, pro its own problems because it did not resolve the problem of poverty and uh, the extent to which uh, the needs of the people were not being realized and in some cases freedom then being interpreted as freedom for the few who have been able to get themselves out of this uh, situation of poverty in which a majority of our people are still reeling through. So you've got very, very serious uh, pockets of poverty uh, in South Africa, and it's one of the challenges that we have to deal with. Uh, attempts have been made to develop the rural areas, to electrify, to bring water and sanitation, health facilities to the rural areas. But there's not been enough, uh, and still quite a lot will have to be done in order to close that gap, because it's so wide that... Uh, uh, if one has got to spend the resources, one has got to then manage 
things in a much more uh, prudent way. But this dichotomy that I've talked about has helped us in a sense because we're using the benefits of this highly developed uh, part of our country or a sector of our country to finance the underdeveloped one. And therefore, it saved us from dependency on foreign aid to an extent because we finance our own budget. And therefore, we can take decisions on what we need to do and be able to deploy the resources accordingly. And of course, uh, with what the compliment we get from the international community, uh, we're able to cushion off where it becomes possible. Now, let me just deal with uh, the current challenges and the election that we're faced with now to answer the question that was posed uh, so that I can close on that one. Yes, indeed, we're going for an election. Let, let, let me tell you what political parties are saying, then you can come to your own conclusion. The major opposition party, which is the Democratic Alliance, is campaigning on the basis of reducing the two-thirds of the ANC in Parliament, not to replace it as an opposition, but to reduce its two-thirds in Parliament. Its leader is campaigning to be a premier in a province. It's like being a governor, not to be president of the country, not looking at that one. They are looking uh, at that. So, 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 and part of the reason, supported by others, is that you need two thirds to be reduced because the ANC might change the constitution. Now, the ANC has had these two thirds and even more. And the appetite to change the constitution has never been there. But in any case, Article 74 of our constitution says that. In order to change the constitution, you need 75% of parliament and six of the nine provinces to agree. It's not going to be easy. So it's a false argument uh, in that sense. Uh, but all it means is that they are not ready to replace the ruling party. That's what they say themselves, and their behavior is the case in that direction. Uh, one of the main parties also, the independent Democrats, their leader is also campaigning to be a provincial premier in the same Cape province as the Democratic Alliance. They are not looking at, uh, at, 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 at the presidency, uh, gaining the majority in order to have a president. They are looking at the, that thing. And that's what they've declared. So it means they've told themselves that their time is not yet now. Inkata Freedom Party is battling to regain Guazulu Natal. That's their major focus. Uh, and therefore, uh, that weakens their national perspectives in terms of replacing the ANC as a ruling party. Uh, the new party that has come out of the ANC, uh, the only indication they have given of an interest is to appoint, appoint, not elect, appoint a presidential candidate 
in an election that is parliamentary. Uh, and of course, this presidential candidate in the end does not even appear in the ballot box. I didn't see his face yesterday. I saw the leader of the party. There's a crisis there. So the argument that they've got the possibility of uh, making a serious dent on the ANC uh, still has to be tested. Now, as to what will happen in the end, I think uh, next week, Wednesday, or Thursday, the jury will be out because the people would have spoken and will know who actually has been able to get what out of this election because the results will be out. Uh, it is not my responsibility to predict that and I wouldn't want even to gamble on that one. I don't have the, that expertise. But I can assure you with one thing, that uh, what we are looking forward to is a stable South Africa that will live in peace with itself and in peace with its neighbors and contribute towards peace in the world. That's what we are looking for. That's the role that we want to play and continue to play as our country. And then for us... Uh, this election, for that reason, uh, is quite crucial because we want to continue with what we have started in these 15 years, to continue to build our country, to continue to play the role we've been playing on the continent. And I think to reward FIFA for its wisdom, for having chosen South Africa to host the next World Cup, it was not by accident. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Our next speaker is uh, Carol Boudreau. She is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center, lead researcher for Enterprise Africa, a research project that investigates, analyzes, and reports on enterprise-based solutions to poverty in Africa. She is a lecturer at George Mason University School of Law and served as a member of the Working Group on Property Rights of the United Nations Commission on Legal Empowerment of the Poor. Ms. Boudreau's main areas of interest include property rights and development, human rights and international law. Uh, the current focus of her research is contemporary Africa and the ways in which particular institutional arrangements have either helped or hindered human flourishment and economic development uh, on the African continent. Before joining the Mercatus Center, Ms. Boudreau was assistant dean at the George Mason's University, uh, University School of Law. She's earned her Bachelor of Arts degree in English Literature from Rutgers University and her JD from the University of Virginia School of Law. Please help me welcome uh, Ms. Carol Boudreau. My thanks to Marion and to the Cato Institute for inviting me and for hosting this panel today on a very important issue. 
Um, the ambassador, I thought, made an excellent point. He said this is both an extraordinary and um, a surprisingly unextraordinary election for South Africa. Extraordinary in that the ANC is facing um, some opposition, but unextraordinary in the sense that this is an African nation that's participating in its fourth peaceful democratic transition, and that's something to celebrate. Um, I was also struck by the ambassador's metaphor, which is that South Africa, uh, the post-1994 South Africa, is a democracy that really in some important ways it's, is either in its infancy or adolescence. And that's important to remember as we talk uh, today about the various challenges uh, that the ANC does face moving forward. I'm going to ask whoever's doing the audiovisual to just lower the screen for me. Um, thank you very much. My section of the talk today is entitled The ANC's Challenge because um, I think everyone is pretty clear or, or pretty much agrees that it's the ANC that will win the election next week. And so the challenge moving forward is not really a challenge for COPE um, or for the DA, in, except insofar as they're in opposition, but it's a challenge for the ANC. And the ambassador was also, I thought, extremely forthright in discussing the variety of challenges that face the ANC moving forward through this next election cycle. Um, in its 2009 manifesto, the ANC uh, suggests that a vote for the party is a vote for a better life for all. And I think what we can talk about for the next 10 to 15 minutes is, is the following question. Can the ANC truly deliver on this promise? And as the ambassador mentioned, there have been difficulties over the past 15 years that the ANC has faced in delivering upon some of its challenges. And in part, this is because of the very difficult circumstances the party found itself in in the post-apartheid environment. But in other cases, it's because there have just been lingering difficulties within the party itself. Um, and dealing with the lingering difficulties, whether it's in terms of delivering housing, whether it's in terms of providing uh, sustainable employment options for the South African poor, or whether it's in terms of addressing serious health concerns. The party ha has not always lived up to the promises that it's raised for the citizens of the country. And so I do think it's reasonable for us to consider, will the party be able to live up to the promises that it's providing in its latest election, uh, this latest election round? Um, and again, the ambassador was, was quite forthright forthright with us and said, you know, we're making promises and we're raising expectations and especially given a difficult economic situation, it can be quite um, challenging for the party to live up to those promises. So what I'm going to focus on is the continuing need within South Africa to consider reform, the continuing need for the ANC as a party to work for reform, and reform that really is focused on providing opportunity for the poorest of the South Africans, because it is a peculiar country, a bifurcated country, um, in some ways a first world and a third world country at the same time, a country with great wealth uh, that, men, that some small group of people have access to, and then a country where there's significant levels of poverty, including abject poverty. I'll focus on some of the domestic concerns that the party will need to address, um, including creating jobs for more people, including improving the education system, and including addressing some of the very serious security concerns um, that still are, are troubling in South Africa. So I want to start by suggesting that South Africa is, um, over the past 15 years, is a country where there are a number of positive developments, a number of important 
uh, successes really that the party can look to, but but also some challenges moving forward. And so the first graph that I'm showing you is really just a, a very simple graph um, highlighting how the South African GDP per capita has increased over the past several years from the year 2000. And that's in comparison to Southern Africa as a region and to Africa as a whole. And you'll see that, so, that South Africa has performed exceptionally well over these past nine years and has had very strong economic growth rates until recently. South Africa's uh, growth rate per year was averaging between 3 and 5%. Um, it's probably reasonable to say for those of you who aren't, who aren't Africa specialists that overall African growth rates have been quite strong for the last several years, especially in East and Southern Africa. And so strong growth rates in South Africa are, are mirroring in important ways what's going on in other parts of the sub-Saharan African region. Uh, good growth rates. And that's a wonderful thing. And that's led to some job creation and led to some, incre some increased economic security for some of the citizens of South Africa. There are other important positives to emphasize in terms of what the government's been able to accomplish over the past 15 years, and those include things like democratic stability. Would anyone in the year 1992 have expected um, the past 15 years to have gone as comparatively well as they have gone? There hasn't been the kind of um, bloodletting that people were expecting, anticipating, predicting in the early 1990s, and the government's to be commended for maintaining some degree of stability in the country. And as I mentioned, this is the fourth democratic transition the country will have stepped through, including the 1994 elections. Compared to many parts of Africa, this is a very important development in South Africa. There has been good progress made in terms of reconciliation, and certainly South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission has served as a model for Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in other parts of the world and other parts of Africa. Um, there has been an expansion of both regional and international economic relationships. This is to the benefit of South Africa as well. It's become much more integrated into the world trading system than it had been under the previous government, under the National Party, which, of course, had faced serious sanctions. And then there's an issue that Tom will address um, after me, and that's the role that South Africa plays as, as a leading voice of the developing world in terms of international affairs and international relations. So these are all positive developments in South Africa. And, and again, the government's to be commended for doing such a good job in terms of maintaining macroeconomic stability, assuming an important role on the world stage, integrating the economy into the world tra into worldwide trading relationships, and maintaining and improving the democratic tradition in South Africa. But as the ambassador said, poverty remains a serious problem within the country. Um, it is the case that a majority of, of, uh, South, poor, of um, black South Africans are poor, 56% are poor. Um, poverty rates for colored South Africans are quite high as well, 34% of that group are living in poverty, much lower rates for whites or Indians. The problems of poverty are especially acute for women-headed households, which sadly are, are an increasing um, percentage of the households in South Africa. And just like in many other countries, the problems are especially acute in rural areas. Rural poverty um, is, is uh, quite visible in South Africa, and it's an area that the new government will certainly need to address moving forward. Some other negatives or ANC priority concerns uh, the ambassador has mentioned as well. I'll talk a little bit more in detail about the problems of education in South Africa. Uh, crime, I'll talk about. The need to create jobs is almost certainly the top challenge that the new government will face. 
um, how to create sustainable jobs in the formal sector, not how to expand the informal sector, but create more job or job opportunities for more people in that formal sector is a real challenge. I won't really spend much time talking about the health issues. Uh, many of you will be familiar with um, the very difficult situation, especially regards HIV AIDS and infection rates there or prevalence rates. Um, but this is something that will take a lot of time and attention on the part of a new government. And then rural development will be related to the three three topics that I really focus on, which are education, crime, and jobs. And I focus on those three because um, it's my belief that these three are actually quite intimately related uh, and really in something of a symbiotic relationship to each other. In order to um, uh, create more jobs in the country, it's probably the case that the government or the private sector needs to do a better job at educating the citizens of South Africa who as the ambassador mentioned, um, have some concern, have some difficulties in terms of educational attainment. It's also important to lower crime rates to provide the private sector, especially with incentives to invest in businesses, expand businesses. That'll help create jobs. Um, and so those are the three things that we'll focus on, I'll focus on in my talk. I wanted to show you um, a comparison of unemployment rates in South Africa as compared with unemployment rates in the United States. Uh, and, of course, these rates in the U.S. would have gone up over the past two years. And so the data is from 2007 and not showing the recent rises in unemployment in the U.S., but nor is it showing recent rises uh, for unemployment in South Africa, although South Africa had a weird blip in terms of uh, lowering unemployment uh, over the past uh, the previous quarter, um, so you can see that South Africa's unemployment rates have been have been really quite strikingly high for some period of time. Uh, South Africa measures unemployment in, in two ways. Um, it has a strict definition of unemployment. The strict definition is looking at people who are currently searching for work in South Africa. And then there's a broader definition of unemployment. And that broader definition includes folks who are um, discouraged and have stopped working. And that strict definition of unemployment, that people who are actively searching for work had until recently been hovering near the 30% mark. Um, so somewhere around 26, 27% until recently. The government has made good progress in this area. It's fair to say the unemployment rate is down now to approximately 21.5%. But, but still, if you think about it, 21.5% unemployment it is quite a striking number. And if you were to add on top of that the number of folks today in April of 2009 who are discouraged and who are therefore not looking for work, the number would be 30% or just above 30%. So it's a serious challenge employing um, how, how one best goes about employing millions of people who are in need of work in South Africa. What explains this high unemployment rate? And in part, the high unemployment rate is certainly the result of the historical legacy of apartheid, uh, a, a, a system, a legal system that um, shunted black South Africans, colored South Africans, to areas that were far away from work opportunities, um, imposed significant costs on them in terms of transport to work opportunities, uh, put them into areas like homelands where there simply weren't opportunities for people to create businesses, um, imposed upon them a series of highly restrictive legislative um, uh, rules and regulations that actually limited the ability of black South Africans, Africans to engage in entrepreneurial opportunities. Uh, so for these reasons, legal, regulatory, um, very unfortunate set of social norms, it had been quite difficult under the National Party government for black South Africans to create businesses, to grow businesses. It made it very difficult for them to get to jobs, find jobs, to rise through the ranks if they, did, if they were employed. Uh, black South Africans were typically shunted into, um, we could say, three major areas, 
uh, domestic work, working in the mines, or doing um, labor on in the agricultural sector. So not a lot of human capital had been built up uh, during the National Party rule either, and this, this is a, a lingering problem. You have a lot of people who want work who haven't been well-trained to take jobs in, in an economy that's uh, very integrated into the world trading system. Um, another problem that's explaining the high levels of unemployment is that there are just literally millions of people looking for work. So there's a huge supply of potential labor all competing with each other for a limited number of formal sector jobs. There's limited demand for for low-skilled jobs, only so many workers who want to employ low-skilled folks. There's very little unemployment problem for people who have graduated from university, for example. There's virtually a zero unemployment rate for those folks. For people who have good skills, they can find work in South Africa. It's the low-skilled people who are having very difficult time finding work. And many of these low-skilled people are living in townships or they're living in rural areas, and it's costly for them to go out and do the searching I'm talking about. So that's a disincentive. It provides a disincentive for them to actually actively search. That's a problem. Um, another problem compounding the problem is that there are relatively high formal sector wages in South Africa. Wages are negotiated on a sectoral basis. There are minimum wages for different sectors. Uh, I know there are historical reasons why these sectoral wages are high that we could discuss if you like. Um, it's the case that this seems to discourage some formal sector employers from hiring folks, especially when people aren't, aren't really well-skilled. Um, they look, uh, they stand at a competitive disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis other folks. And then South Africa still does have some labor uh, regulation rigidity, especially in terms of difficulty or costliness of firing workers. All of these things combine to make it difficult for low-skilled workers, especially women, especially youth, to find formal sector jobs in South Africa. These problems make it costly for employers to hire people who are low-skilled and then for whom it's difficult to go through the process of firing if it turns out that they don't work. Um, so there's a perception among employers that it may not be worthwhile to hire low-skilled workers, even though the low-skilled workers would love to find jobs in South Africa. They would love to find jobs, and they find it increasingly difficult to have to face competition from folks who are immigrating into the, into the country. South Africa has um, commendably open immigration policies. And as a result of that, literally millions of people have moved into South Africa from neighboring African countries over the past several years, especially from Zimbabwe. The Zimbabwean immigrants, other immigrants compete with low-skilled South African workers for the few formal sector jobs there are. This can create tensions. Last summer, it led to um, extensive violence across the country. And that's a problem that the government may need to address, especially moving forward. I saw this week figures that perhaps Perhaps as many as 25,000 mining jobs are at risk, given the economic downturn. So imagine having another 25,000 folks uh, who have been retrenched, competing with the folks who are already on the ground looking for work. It's a very difficult situation. So too is the situation regarding education. Um, education in South Africa is a shared responsibility, which means that it's the national level government that sets and creates education policies that works on national curriculum. Uh, but it's the provincial level governments and especially the municipal or local level governments that have to implement the policies that are created, have to run the schools, have to get the kids into school and provide the education. Um, like many other countries, South Africa has an overwhelmingly large public school sector. 96% uh, of the schooling provided is by the public sector. Only 4% is independent. 
Unfortunately, um, the public sector is not providing good quality education for the learners in the country. Uh, South African students actually score worse than students from many other African countries on standardized tests. So whether you're looking at a country like Niger or a country like Mali, students in those countries actually score better than South African students do in terms of math. Um, and and reading and education. Why do they, why are students scoring poorly? In part, it's because the teachers themselves um, may not have the kind of educational training that would be best suited for students. Uh, in part, it's because of this um, highly bureaucratized, we might say centralized approach to education that has led to um, a process that requires teachers, through the Americans in the audience, you'll find this maybe a familiar statement, to be teaching two tests uh, and to be doing an awful lot of reporting and and, and um, uh, uh, um, administrative paperwork, maybe less, th- maybe a little bit less of that, and more time in the classroom would be a very useful thing for learners in South Africa. Teachers complain routinely about having extremely heavy workloads and about being able to spend less and less time in the classroom doing what they're there to do, which is to teach the students. And so you end up with high levels of job dissatisfaction among teachers in South Africa, thousands of positions not unfilled moving forward, uh, dissatisfactions about opening those job positions up to Zimbabweans who might fill those positions. Uh, We've got teacher shortages and severe infrastructure backlogs in the schooling system in South Africa. Many schools who don't have electricity, many schools still don't have um, toilet facilities for students, Many schools still don't have basic books and other tools that they need to teach their students. And while this is a tremendous challenge, because uh, sort of closing the gap in the post-apartheid era, because of course the apartheid government had created a separate educational system for black South Africans, um, it's something that must be addressed by the new government in an effective manner in order to get more of the poor people in South Africa trained to assume formal sector jobs and and grow the economy in meaningful ways. Crime's also a significant problem in the country, and this is a chart showing you levels of a variety of different crimes. Um, I think the important thing to tell you about this is that crime has been trending down in South Africa over the last several years, but the crime rate is sort of astonishing to us. Uh, typical crime rate in South Africa is 50 murders per day each and every day, which um, figures to about uh, figures to over eight, 18,000 murders per year in South Africa, which is actually higher than the U.S. figure in a country that has one-sixth the population. Um, Sexual violence is quite high. And why is this important? Well, it's important not only because people suffer directly, individuals suffer, but because it makes it quite difficult for businesses to do do their business. Whether it's costs associated with with injuries, loss of life property, or work disruptions, um, this serious crime problem creates disincentives for businesses to invest, and it it propels a flight from the country. So many people who are well-trained and who have opportunities leave the country because they're dissatisfied with the, the way the government has been able to deal with the crime problem. Um, in a recent report that was commissioned by the Office of the Presidency in South Africa, uh, looking at the impact of crime on small business, we find that crime remains a small remains a major concern for companies that were surveyed. Seventy percent of these businesses see themselves and their and their employees as being at serious risk of crime, either at the workplace or while they're traveling to and from. Um, what I think. The South African government, and it will be an ANC government, needs to think about moving forward. How can you address these various problems? 
Uh, we'll talk in just a moment about some suggestions for that. But I think what they really need to think about is how can we support more effectively an environment for entrepreneurship in the country? Um, South, African, it, South Africa is filled with individuals who are extraordinarily entrepreneurial, who are highly creative, who want to be part of a worldwide trading network, but who, for a variety of reasons, oftentimes related to problems at the local level, oftentimes problems related to crime, um, sometimes problems related to costs of doing business, find it very difficult to create formal sector jobs, to employ people, to grow their businesses, to expand and invest, to create a more dynamic entrepreneurial South Africa. But entrepreneurship is surely one of the keys moving forward. So thinking carefully about how can we improve the entrepreneurial environment in the country for all South Africans will be imp an important part of the challenge. Well, well what can be done realistically um, by the new government in order to in order to spur that entrepreneurial, uh, we might even think of it as a revolution in South Africa. Um, I have a couple of suggestions. Uh, number one, in terms of creating jobs, because this will be the top priority for the new government. One, one option to think about would be creating special economic zones, which have been quite successful in many other countries around the world to encourage job creation, uh, to encourage business development, to encourage on-the-job learning and training. Uh, number two, there could be uh, the South Africans could perhaps look at an experiment that's been undertaken by the New Zealand government, which is creating a two-tier minimum wage, lower minimum wage for younger workers, higher minimum wage for workers who are 25 or above, or create special exemption certificates that would travel with unemployed individuals of all ages and would exempt both the individuals and the employees from some of the labor regulations that currently make it costly to employ people. In terms of improving the educational environment, I think um, an, important, uh, an important policy to consider would be encouraging the entry of more private sector educational entrepreneurs. Cato was um, hosting Jim Tooley yesterday. Uh, Tooley is a leading expert on the role that private sector entrepreneurs can play in providing educational opportunities for the very poorest of the poor in Africa and India. And so creating some space for these educational entrepreneurs to do what they do so well, which is meet the needs of uh, low-income parents and their children, would be a positive step step in the right direction, as well as reducing some of the regulatory burdens um, that teachers are facing, that local level schools face, and allowing much more local autonomy in terms of creating a curriculum that meets the needs of students in different parts of the country, rather than having a one-size-fits-all national curriculum. Finally, I'd suggest modifying teacher certifi certification requirements and allowing teachers to actually assume a position, even if they have like me, a BS in English literature rather than a BS in, or a BA in English lit rather than a BA in education. Um, a little more flexibility on that front might bring a whole different group of folks into the classroom um, and provide a more enriching environment for the students and learners in South Africa. Finally, the, the challenge of crime is such a difficult challenge in South Africa, and, and it's and um, I've seen very few positive. I've seen very few very substantive recommendations on this policy front. But certainly, trying to raise recruitment standards for SAPS would be an important initiative, and the ANC has. Um, has stated that they're, they're very enthusiastic about doing this. Also, encouraging more crime reporting. Oftentimes, citizens simply don't report crime because they think nothing will happen. 
uh, if they report the crime. The ambassador did mention the importance of community involvement, and surely this is an important component of the problem. Um, If we look at what the new government is saying it will do in the manifesto, we see a lot of emphasis on state-led industrial policy to create jobs um, in an echo of of our new administration, um, an emphasis on creating green jobs, an emphasis on public investment programs for growth and employment creation. So really the focus in the ANC manifesto seems to be on having the government solve the problems that I've just mentioned, and maybe there's more room for the private sector to take up some of the challenges that the ANC faces, which are such significant challenges, and really contribute in important and vital ways to job creation, to improving the educational environment, and to dealing with some of the crime challenges that the country continues to face. I'll close on this note. Um, uh, Just about a month ago, South Africa's finance minister, Trevor Manuel, was quoted as saying, um, uh, when when asked, what's the real challenge in South Africa moving forward? What's the economic challenge? Uh, He said, look, the challenge is we must diversify, but, but that's up to entrepreneurs. And And he recognizes that governments are oftentimes bad at producing entrepreneurs, but this is what the ANC's challenge will be moving forward. Not only how best to secure the environment in terms of lowering crime rates, but how to create an environment that will be entrepreneur-friendly. The South African people are entrepreneurial, and they can meet the challenge. They need their government to help them meet that challenge. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. Thank you very much for the presentation. It was very interesting. Um, our last speaker is uh, Tom Woods. Uh, he's the Senior Associate Fellow at the Allison Center for Foreign Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Woods is a leading expert on United States-Africa relations, uh, human and economic development, and political and security issues involved um, invo- involving the continent. He's also president of Woods International, a private sector consulting firm focused on uh, economic growth strategies and public and private partnerships uh, for African development. Before joining Heritage in 2008, Woods served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Africa and led U.S. engagement with 25 countries in West and Southern Africa. He also led U.S. economic policy toward Africa, including trade and investment issues. He's been instrumental in shaping U.S. policy on Africa and driving the change um, from a focus on aid to a focus on trade partnership. Prior to serving at the State Department, uh, Woods was the Deputy Assistant Administrator for Africa at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Woods received a bachelor's uh, degree in international studies and economics uh, from uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, He also has a master's degree in international relations from Johns Hopkins University of Advanced International Studies. Please help me welcome Tom Woods. Thanks, Marion, and uh, thanks to Cato for uh, hosting this discussion. Mr. Ambassador, thank you for your remarks. Carol, I feel like I should pay some tuition for that very informative uh, discussion that you led. Rather than plunge into the specifics of the, uh, the elections next week in South Africa, I'm going to take a slightly different approach, and I'll keep my remarks fairly brief so that we have plenty of time for question and answer. Uh, the question for me, really, is why we're even here at Cato Institute talking about South Africa's elections. I mean... Why should the U.S. care about what has really become a fairly routine process in South Africa? 
We know, of course, as we saw, there's a lot going on uh, in terms of policy and economic development and uh, human development, which uh, certainly lends itself to analysis. But uh, our concern about South Africa's democracy really goes much deeper. At the macro level, I would say it boils down to a, a very simple observation. South Africa is just too important to fail. And when I say fail, what I really mean is that it must not only survive as a multi-party democracy that contributes to regional economic growth and stability, it has to thrive so that it can reach its fullest potential and be an engine of change for the African continent. Now, more to the point, from the U.S. perspective, we need South Africa as a key strategic partner in the region. In large measure, the Obama administration's uh, policy goals in Africa of development through sustained economic growth, of enhanced peace and stability, of support for good governance, they depend in, in part on having a very strong relationship with uh, the most advanced uh, economy and country in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, when you get below the macro level picture, the current electoral process in South Africa is important because it sends powerful signals about how the United States is going to be able to relate to South Africa into the future. I think it's, it's been well noted. South Africa is no longer in its democratic experiment phase. This is their fourth elections. So I think it's dangerous in some ways to, to speculate, really to any large degree, about the health of South Africa's institutions based on kind of what we're seeing now, the hardball politics and political calculations uh, that you see during a hotly contested election. I mean, after all, politics is, is politics, and mudslinging is, uh, is pretty, a pretty common trait in an electoral process, and that includes everything from the Democratic Alliance's Stop Zuma slogan to the efforts of the ANC to link the Congress of the People, to a much maligned former President Mbeki. This doesn't, however, dismiss the notion that how the game is played becomes a reflection of the overall health of the democratic system. But why should South Africa really be devoid of, of a lot of the same sorts of political wranglings that we have you know, here in our own system? I would uh, highlight again the important footnote that if the ANC wins a two-thirds majority, it will be easier for them to amend the Constitution. And this I only flag in light of recent comments by Jacob Zuma about the issue of judicial independence, about uh, concerns over the erosion of uh, local government authorities, and uh, growing concerns about media freedoms. So as South Africans head to the polls, they need to be mindful of, of this issue. We're also, I would say, witnessing a discouraging trend, and I commend the ambassador for kind of hitting uh, substance on this, and that is uh, very much like uh, in the United States, there has been a lack of focus on substance. Uh, whereas we here had vague slogans about change, uh, you see the ANC uh, uh, adopting studious generalities about progress, and little to nothing is said about the two-tier economy, uh, the growing gap between the rich and the poor in South Africa, the need for land reform that adheres to the rule of law, 
country's efforts to fight HIV-AIDS, or the fact that uh, South Africa's business community has been saddled with uh, almost a doubling of its taxes over the last 10 years. So this lack of substance, I think, in many ways, we can see as a strategy by the ANC, which has done well to avoid anything that would suggest wild swings to the left, which is what so many people were afraid of. And basically, they're promoting a policy of, uh, don't worry, nothing's going to change much. So as the ANC has kind of regained its footing, I think uh, we again get this sense of inevitability. And really, the opposition has only itself to blame for probably this missed opportunity. Now, let me step back again and just the next few minutes and highlight some, some key points from the perspective of U.S.-South Africa relations. You can probably count on two or three fingers the African countries that have independent capability and capacity to positively affect and impact Africa on a whole in a positive way. And certainly we would put South Africa among those. The U.S. needs to stay focused I would argue, on, on its critical common interests and should take every available measure to reshape and, I think, frankly, rebuild its partnership with the new South Africa government. I'll get more specific in a minute, but let me highlight the fact that partnership really has to be a two-way street. For too long, South Africa has rejected overtures from Washington and has seemed to actively look for opportunities to move away from the U.S. I think that the potential for powerful collaboration is simply too great to be squandered. And I hope that we'll see marked progress in the overall U.S.-South Africa partnership in the, in the year ahead. Now let me be more concrete when I mention progress. There is probably no better place to start than working together to rebuild Zimbabwe. This is not only in South Africa's direct national interest, it must be an important goal for the Obama administration's Africa policy. And this does not mean simply that Washington writes the checks and nothing changes on the ground in Zimbabwe. The U.S., South Africa, and the international donor community has a unique window of opportunity to put Zimbabwe on a clear path toward democratic reform, and economic recovery. Now, we might explore that a little bit more in the question and answer period. In the past, the U.S. and South Africa had a really broad and rich dialogue through a series of bilateral commissions. Now, some of these never really bore any fruit at all. But I think it's worth re-examining uh, those areas where we can get, uh, get strong collaboration on very substantive issues. And I would put uh, as one of those issues uh, greater economic, uh, regional economic integration. And I would only point out that the failed U.S. SACU free trade talks should really not be an impediment to a robust discussion about ways to strengthen uh, regional trade and investment. The U.S. and South Africa must also think about regional peace and security and especially as it relates to peacekeeping efforts in places like Congo. The U.S.-Africa command should not be an impediment to stronger bilateral military cooperation, but rather should, should be seen as just one more tool 
in the toolbox that both U.S. and South Africa can, can draw upon as they look at their own common interests uh, of building peace and stability on the continent. Of course, it's been mentioned South Africa uh, needs to stay in its fight against HIV-AIDS, and the U.S. can do a lot in terms of technical and financial assistance. I hope that that would be an area of greater collaboration in the years ahead. This is not an exhaustive list. It's really meant to highlight the fact that U.S. and South Africa have so much to gain from strengthened bilateral cooperation. I would conclude by saying that the bigger question, at least, at least from a U.S. foreign policy standpoint, about South Africa's elections next week is how can the Obama administration work with the next South Africa administration to proactively shape a positive agenda focused on shared interests. And the question should be uh, a very intentional point of policy focus here in Washington. So I would echo that as the South African voters head to the polls next week, I think we can really celebrate that Africa has this example of multi-party democracy. And I think we can look forward to South Africa being a positive force for change on the African continent, and I sincerely hope a strong partner for the United States. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tom. And uh, we have about, well, 15 minutes for Q&A. So uh, I would just ask you to please raise your hand, and then um, um, I, I would ask you to make your questions short and perhaps tell us who you are. Uh, right here. Thank you. I'm Jamie Kirchick from the New Republic magazine. I found a lot of the um, prognostications here somewhat overly sanguine, and there's, there was very little talk of the man who's going to be the next president, who is undoubtedly a demagogue, probably a crook, and an accused rapist. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, how that is going to affect U.S. Um, South African relations over the next couple of years, considering who this man is, the cloud that continues to hang over him, and the very provocative statements that he's been making over the past couple weeks, months, and, and years. Thank you. Anybody wants to take this on? I think it will be a, a, a mistake to base bilateral relations on, on, on the strengths and weaknesses of individuals. Uh, you rather look at the common interests that we have. Uh, that should be the defining basis. Uh, other issues will have to resolve themselves in the process. But I think if we have to uh, go into the issues that you have raised, uh, just look at the response of the South African population to the same issues that you have raised. Uh, if I would take the line that you are taking, then it means the whole country, uh, the majority of those people, something wrong with them. Uh, not that they are not sensitive and, uh, and, and concerned about the issues that you are raising in relation to uh, uh, some of the problems that uh, uh, Jacob Zuma might have had. Uh, but they are looking more at something else, and it is that something else that we have to discover. 
because you can't have so many people uh, making a very fatally fundamental mistake uh, of following and, 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 and investing their confidence and trust in somebody uh, who is not capable of uh, uh, dealing with the situation uh, that is facing them. Now, the, the rape charges that you have mentioned, it, I know there's a debate that maybe there are technicalities in courts, people get scot-free and all this, but was discharged. Now, if somebody is charged and the court goes to trial and gets discharged, why should the case continue to be reviewed? Why should you continue to charge him for the case that has been thrown out by the courts? Uh, I think that would be a really serious mistake to judge a person on the basis of that. Yeah. would rather look at the common interests that we have and how to advance those common interests together. Yes. Thanks very much. Uh, my name is David Folks. I'm a South African and I'm a student here at SAIS. I think this question is for Ms. Baudreau. You've spoken about various options for South Africa's economy, steps you think it should take, which have really been the kind of things we'd expect to hear at Cato, uh, decentralized, privatized, and so forth. Really quite liberal ideas. Um, but I would guess you actually aren't that optimistic about these things happening. Um, I don't think South Africa's government or the ANC is very enthusiastic about these ideas, or even about the private sector. Um, if you agree with me, do you think you could speak a little bit to why there isn't terribly much enthusiasm in the ANC for private sector-led improvements? Uh, no, I don't think that the ANC is um, likely to adopt many of the policy recommendations that I suggest, and I think there, there are practical political reasons uh, why it would be difficult for the government to expand privatization efforts or create two-tier minimum wages or create special exemption certificates um, and that's because the political parties that uh, that make up the tripartite alliance in South Africa are the ANC plus the South African Communist Party plus COSATU, as you know. And um, COSATU and the, tra the labor unions uh, are um, very important supporters of the ANC and have a strong incentive to provide protection for their uh, union members. Um, and they've done a reasonably good job at negotiating um, decent salaries for for members, but the uh, the consequence of some of those high, relatively high wages are that many other South Africans who are not labor union members find it quite difficult to um, get employment. Uh, teachers union, the teachers union is one of the largest um, segments of uh, the employed sector in South Africa. And it's not to say that, that I, I am casting aspersions or, or um, find any malicious intent on the part of these organizations, but it's just normal politics that uh, if one of your um, partners is benefiting from a particular arrangement, legislatively or regulatorily speaking, then you would want to continue to maybe um, provide some support for that partner. So I think many Americans aren't, aren't aware of the partnership as it exists, and it does, I think, help us explain the political economy of South Africa, um, recognizing that. And, and uh, Kasatu is a very important political partner, as is the Communist Party. Let, let me uh, add something to that. Um, uh, first of all, I agree with everything that Carol says, as I 
always do. And uh, I would love to see South Africa move in the direction of other <coughs> very successful export-based economies, such as the Asian Tigers in the 70s or Chile, um, that, that have managed to dramatically increase their growth rates and their incomes. Um, additional reason why that is very unlikely to happen is because I regret to say that South African political scene continues to be um, shackled or, if you will, hostage uh, to the ideological debates of the past. I think this is incredibly important. Um, apartheid is uh, very much in the, um, in the thoughts um, of, uh, and in the imagination of a lot of people in South Africa, continues to be, and there are very good reasons for that. Trouble is uh, that during the 40 years of apartheid, the, the, the apartheid government insisted on... Uh, on, on describing itself as an outpost of the West, as a protector, if you will, of uh, uh, Western democratic capitalism against communist onslaught. And so that in the minds of a lot of South Africans, what they think of when they think of apartheid is they associated with a certain set of values which the apartheid government claimed to have, claimed to have um, uh, supported. Uh, the reality was, of course, completely different. Uh, the very origins of apartheid legislation were in job protection schemes for the whites in the 1920s. And the apartheid government itself was dominated by very large state parastatals and state-led development state. If we are talking about development state today, uh, we should always remember that the developmental state in South Africa has its roots in the 60s and the 70s. So I think that you have that uh, additional problem of, uh, of really misunderstanding what free market is. A lot of people think South Africa already had it. My argument would be that really for a short period uh, during the Mandela administration, uh, there really has not been uh, a significant move toward liberalization of the South African economy. Yes, sir. Oh, oh, in the back. Yeah. My name is Jaffer from Voice of America. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, first of all, uh, I want to know whether land distribution issue is part of the challenges that you're facing in your government. Because most of the countries, like Zimbabwe, one of the crisis areas was the land reform. So I'd like you to address that. And then secondly, why do you want us to think that uh, the current problems that ANC was facing in South Africa, they are challenges and, and not failures? Why don't we call them failures? Thank you so much. You'll have to convert me. <laughs> they still remain challenges. Uh, because they, they are a res result of a historical process. Um, <clears throat> and we are dealing with uh, 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 correcting a lot of uh, imbalances of the past. And I am not going to even apologize for having to refer to that, because that is the reality. If for once we are going to pretend that there is no history in that country, uh, that necessitates that we take certain steps and begin to deal with the damage that has been done at all levels of life in South Africa, then we don't know what we're talking about. Because those of us who lived under apartheid, 
understand precisely what it means and how far it went. I was born when the Nationalist Party came into power. I lived under apartheid until uh, it, was, it was gone. So I know what I'm talking about. I know what it means. So for me, it's not uh, any light thing when I say make any statement. I bear that in mind because it has to do with me personally, my own upbringing, my own experience in life. So when we talk of challenges, we talk of real challenges because there are challenges. Uh, because we're dealing with a failure and trying to make success out of it. That's where the relationship is. And of course, if we fail, we'll admit we have failed to meet these uh, challenges because of certain reasons, and that's precisely what I've been saying, that this is what we, we wanted to do, and here we did not succeed, and these are the problems that came. There are challenges. Uh, if you've got a, a situation of uh, abuse of the tender system and corruption, it's a challenge. If you say it's a failure, then what do you do about it? If it's a challenge, then it means you are looking at it uh, in terms of uh, a positive attitude to deal with it. It's not defeatist. Because it's a failure, then you're defeated. There's nothing you can do about it. So I'll approach it differently. And uh, the relationship for me between uh, failure and challenge, I I'll deal with it on that basis. Land distribution, uh, it's a serious problem. I'm sure you know even just yesterday and even today that some people have been occupying some land that has been a part of the result of what you can say a success in dealing with the land question. But it introduced new problems that led to people occupying that land. Uh, when you would have thought that uh, that would have been a benefit because it's land that was restored to a community uh, from whom it was uh, taken away by the apartheid regime. So there was a success in that policy in terms of what needed to be done, in terms of land re restitution. But then you have the problem in terms of management of that land and the arrangements that were entered into, which led to this current kind of conflict. And that was one of the flagship uh, 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 projects that tested uh, how far, how extensive, and how successful uh, this land reform policy can be. Now, you also have to understand that when you deal with land in South Africa, you deal with different categories of land ownership. It's not just one mass uh, uh, that thing. There is land that is in the hands of the state, uh, particularly uh, in the military, still in the hands of the military. There is land that is contested, uh, which is subject to, to, to the Lands Claims Court and discussions that are going on around that. There's what used to be called tribal land, which has been in the hands of the chiefs to administer on behalf of the... That one has also not been redistributed, dealt with uh, in terms of having to deal with that because if you have to deal with this institution that was abused in the management of land that was already even scarce, uh, you have to go a long way in finding the best possible way of dealing with it because it has its own other sensitivities. So it's not a simple question. You can have easy policies developed. 
But when you come to application of those policies, uh, there are a number of sensitivities that you have to take into consideration.